Good morning, class. Today we're going to talk about tax incentives. Can anyone tell me what an economic development zone is? Anyone? Anyone? Anybody but Brian? Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Anybody But Brian. Uh, I hope everybody had a good holiday season and a happy new year. Uh, In this episode, we're going to tackle the successes and failures of economic and technological development zones, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad. Now, basically, every government, whether local, state, or national, looks for ways to spark economic growth. If you take a look at almost any publication, the success of a politician is often measured by the performance of key economic indicators in that area. Now, whether that should be the case or not is debatable, but that's our modern reality. Uh, So considering those measurements, politicians always look for ways or almost any lever at their disposal to create new jobs and generate growth. One of the most common ways has become economic development zones or economic incentive zones. These are multi-jurisdictional entities commonly composed of multiple counties in certain cases, uh, even across state borders, that are selected by local or state authorities to receive assistance from government-sponsored economic programs. Uh, This assistance can take the form of tax incentives, uh, low-interest loans for businesses that locate or expand in the area, as well as targeted investment from foreign firms or uh, even government contract awards. But the key question is, is it worth it? Uh, I mean, do these things really work? So I want to take a look at three examples that illustrate varying degrees of success for these types of incentives or economic zones. For one of the most successful examples, we're going to examine the National Economic and Technological Development Zones of China. Uh, These national-level programs started with special economic zones for three particular cities in 1978, and then part of uh, economic reforms in China. Eventually, these were extended to the overall Economic and Technological Development Zones, or EDZs, in 14 cities in 1984. Uh, These were really with the explicit goal of increasing foreign direct investment in the nation. According to a study by the RAND Corporation, these zones were wildly successful. Uh, They generated a substantial share of China's industrial output, value-added, including exports, and attracted a large share of foreign direct investment. From 2008 to 2010, these zones accounted for almost 30% of all Chinese exports and 15% of China's GDP growth on average. Additionally, one of the roles of EDZs in China was to support growth of high technology industries. Uh, The government, as well as foreign firms, provided funds for science and technology, as well as R&D to companies located in these zones. Uh, And they also assisted companies and individuals to apply for patents within these zones. In 2011, this resulted in more than half of all patents approved in China originating from these economic development and technological development areas. While these zones have not been without problems, increases in these outputs have largely contributed to China's economic growth uh, and have been a large role in its ascendance on the national stage since the 1980s. On the flip side, if we turn our attention back to the U.S., a program of more marginal success is the U.S. federal government's Hub Zone program. Uh, this is run by the Small Business Administration, uh, and it's when the government limits competition for certain federal contracts to businesses in historically underutilized business zones. Uh, these zones are areas with historically high chronic unemployment and usually a lower than average median income. 
To become a HubZone business and compete for these contracts, a firm must be a small business, uh, which definition varies by NAICS codes or uh, North American Industrial Classification System codes, which means very specific products and services have a limit, whether it be by revenue or employee, to become a small business. Um, the HubZone firm also has to have 35% of its employees live in that designated zone uh, and be at least 51% owned and controlled by a U.S. citizen, uh, a community development corporation, an agricultural co-op, uh, a Native American tribe, or a Native Hawaiian organization. Now, as of uh, November 8, 2018, uh, the SBA's Dynamic Small Business Search Database included 6,558 firms with an active HubZone certification. Uh, in fiscal year 2017, the federal government awarded over 81,000 contracts valued at roughly $7.5 billion to HubZone certified businesses a pretty significant investment in underserved communities. Uh, however, historically, the program has had issues with fraud and abuse where firms are self-certifying um, or skirting the res residency regulations. Through various GAO audits, it was found uh, in 2009 that roughly four firms nationwide accounted for uh, between 85 and 90% of those contracts awarded. Uh, so meaning that while there have been a significant amount invested in these areas, it's had little national impact when you look at the hub zone areas in aggregate. Uh, additionally, many agencies do not meet the 3% uh, federal set-aside goal to, for business uh, hub zone businesses to win federal contracts. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag in comparison to the kind of nationally orchestrated program in China. Um, but, you know, these are kind of more niche examples. Uh, I think one of the more famous examples that I really want to take a look at from an economic development zone perspective uh, are state and local tax breaks for large corporations in the U.S. The most recent famous example of this type of proposal uh, was the courting of Amazon's HQ2 by dozens of states and municipalities around the country. The simple idea is that if a locality is able to bring a new corporation into the area, it will create new jobs, which will raise the income level in the area, increase spending, and basically beget even more growth. So for example, if Amazon were to bring five, you know, 50,000 highly paid workers into an area, uh, you know, which it said was going to average around $100,000 a year in salary, not only are those workers all paying income tax plus property tax for those who buy homes or property, uh, but they're also buying food and clothes and other things in the area, which prop up nearby service companies and contribute to a lot of other sales taxes. Um, Amazon itself is also meant to be paying smaller contractor companies, ranging from janitors, internet server manufacturers, internet service providers uh, who are paying taxes themselves and potentially hiring even more workers, uh, which would then pay even more taxes to support that new corporation. Uh, now, all of these different growth levers are what's supposed to make up for the taxes that are lost uh, from the actual incentive pa package that goes to Amazon itself. You know, in reality, though, this domino theory of growth almost never works out for a variety of reasons. So first, instead of focusing on highly innovative, high-paying industries that can create a lot of jobs, which Amazon would fall into, um, a recent study by Timothy Bartrick of the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research finds that incentives are poorly targeted and there's little rhyme or reason to which firms or which industries get them. 
As he points out, incentives don't vary in light of the industry characteristics that would predict greater local benefits. Obvious ones like how much R&D that industry does, how many people they employ, and what are the level of wages they pay, in theory should all factor into those incentive bases. So for example, a 10% increase in an industry's wages predicts just a 3% increase in incentives. Uh, So incentives really track more with the state's gross taxes than with unemployment rate, wage levels, uh, or the other economic multipliers associated with research and development. Moreover, states and localities often shell out way too much money up front. They front load incentives instead of watching how businesses that are getting the incentives perform over time. Uh, Companies are able to just take the incentives up front and can be slow to deliver on jobs or follow on investment, or in some cases, just pull up shop altogether. Uh, Easy example of this has been the recent controversy over the carrier plan in Indiana. Uh, This happened when President Trump initially took office and he leveraged Vice President Mike Pence relationships in Indiana uh, to give carrier roughly $7 million in tax incentives for keeping jobs in that plant for a year. When that year was up, uh, carrier simply continued with their uh, initial plans to move the majority of those jobs to Mexico. So, you know, a variety of states kind of continue to shell out incentives even after these companies fail to meet their own projections for jobs or investment, um, and they hand over the money without even tracking if those jobs are met or if the promises are met. Um, So if you don't track it, the numbers almost never make sense. For example, additionally, Wisconsin recently pledged roughly $3 billion in incentives to the electronics manufacturer Foxconn to build a plant in Racine County that the company says will eventually employ 13,000 workers. Um, Those 13,000 workers certainly haven't showed up yet. Um, There's a lot of debate whether they ever will. Uh, But even if we take that at face value, according to Wisconsin's own estimates, the cost to the taxpayer per job created is $230,700, meaning the state won't recoup its initial investment until 2043. That's a pretty terrible return on investment. So, you know, overall, uh, Bartek's study concludes there's little connection between the level of incentives a state forks over to businesses and its economic growth. Uh, These conclusions are in line with a wide body of research on the wastefulness of business incentives. Uh, A 2002 study uh, of some 350 companies that received incentives found a negative effect, actually, on their ability to create jobs. And companies that received incentives expanded more slowly than others in many cases, meaning that the overall effect of incentives was a reduction of roughly 10 jobs per establishment. And, you know, as somebody who has managed businesses before, this makes sense. Uh, When I look personally at how I get measured at work, uh, almost universally, the profit measurements I get pinned to are the EBIT, the earnings before interest and taxes. Uh, Tax incentives for like a division level of a large multinational corporation are not driven by tax incentives. It's it's not what uh, the individual managers and largely what people have Uh, input into hiring decisions or R&D look at uh, because it's not relevant to most parts of the business. Beyond these basic failing, there's also little reporting of the the ripple effects on other states and businesses. So in many cases, one company's gain is another company's loss. 
in the case of the retail industry, as much as 90% of the apparent direct benefits of tax incentives are offset by losses among the subsidized retailers' local competitors, according to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Similarly, economic incentives in one state can just mean a reshuffling of resources from one neighboring state to another. For example, when looking at tax incentive programs between neighboring Kansas and Missouri, uh, it was found that most companies were switching headquarters only a few miles away from state to state, and at times even within the same city, uh, Kansas City, in order to maximize the cash for their incentive programs. Yet they weren't hiring any new workers, and they were offering pro- often providing really no additional economic benefit. The programs became so unsuccessful that in 2011, representatives of 17 area companies, including big firms like Sprint, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Hallmark, and Quest Diagnostics, signed an open letter to governors in both states, urging them to halt the incentives and come up with a better way to promote the region as a whole, signaling a pretty severe economic miscalculation. So overall, I would say economic development zones and tax incentive zones are pretty ineffective. Unless there's an explicit, nationally orchestrated, strictly enforced set of measurable goals, such as in the China example, the zones often waste billions of dollars in taxpayer funds that could be dedicated to more enhanced social services, which have their own economic benefits. Especially within the United States, where we don't have that kind of centralized economic control as in China, Uh, these dollars would often be much more valuable being invested in early childhood education, uh, additional research and development for new technologies that could be used across multiple industries, or really health benefits which would create healthier and more productive workers. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Uh, This is a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart and is certainly uh, relevant to a lot of the political trials and tribulations we see in today's economy. Uh, Again, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening in. Take care.